You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our text today is from Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Have you ever stood at the edge of the Grand Canyon and gazed out on what seems like a painting on the world's largest canvas? Or do you remember the first time you saw the ocean? You looked out on a blue expanse seemingly with no end, and you could feel the power of the water as the waves crashed against the shore. Or maybe when you stood at the foot of a California redwood and you craned your net backwards just to try to see the top and you put your hands on a tree trunk the size of a small house. What do you feel in these moments? What do you gain? You gain perspective. You feel awe. And you probably feel small. And while what I just described are generally individual experiences, the whole world gained this perspective at the same time in 1990 when the Voyager 1 space probe sent back a picture known as the pale blue dot. It was a photograph of the Earth from 3.7 billion miles away. Astronomer Carl Sagan described the Earth in the photo as, quote, a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. It's like when you're sitting in your living room in the evening light, and the, and the light is coming through the windows at just the right angle, and you can see the dust in the air as it floats by. Sagan said, everyone that you've ever known and not known, the world's greatest and least, have been born, lived, and died on that little speck of dust floating in the ever-expanding vastness of the universe. And Psalm 8 says that this vastness, from the smallest lilies of the field to the farthest stars of the night sky, is the work of God's fingers. These are things that he has personally set in their place. Like a painter, he uses just the smallest parts of the tips of his fingers to paint his masterpiece. And the psalmist says that God's glory has been set even above these things. Even higher and more majestic than the greatest wonders of creation is the God who spoke them all into existence by the power of his word. 
when we ask the question today of how high is the love of God for us in Christ. We're asking a question whose answer necessarily deals with God's transcendence. See, what we're doing this Advent season is we're looking at the text that you just heard read in Ephesians chapter 3. And we're, we're, we're narrowing in particularly on verse 18. And we're slowing down to study the dimensions of God's love to us in Christ. Or as Spurgeon has put it, it the, the scientific measurements of God's love. And each week, we've been looking at a different word that Paul uses in verse 18 to describe the boundlessness of God's love. And we've been stopping on each one to show how the incarnation of Christ in particular proves that dimension of God's love to us. And today we arrive at the height of God's love. And as I just mentioned, what we're actually talking about here is God's transcendence. But this morning, my main point, the thing that I hope to show you by the end of this is that the height of Christ's love to us is seen in how small he was willing to become for us. The height of his love to us is seen in how small he was willing to become for us. But in order to really understand that statement, we need to do a little bit of work. Because like I said, to even attempt to understand this main point, we need to begin to understand God's transcendence. And so let's just start right there. What do we mean when we say God is transcendent? Well, to be honest, we're actually saying a bunch of things. We're saying he's majestic and exalted. We're saying that he's perfect in holiness. He's God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. We're saying he's the only one that told the oceans that they can only go this far. And really, when we say that God is transcendent, what we're saying is that he's unable to be categorized by us because he's outside of what our human intellect can fully even understand. For instance, uh, when King Solomon dedicates the temple in 1 Kings 8, he prays, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath. Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Solomon knows that God has no contemporaries that he can compare him to. And so he's saying God's greatness can't be held captive by this dwelling place that he's built for him. He knew that creation itself trembles at his might and power. And he knew that God is far greater than anything human hands can touch or minds can fathom. And this is why Paul prays here in Ephesians that God would give us the strength to comprehend his love. Paul is saying, for us to comprehend God, to lay hold of him, to, to take this knowledge in, because that's what it means to comprehend it. That's what Paul's saying. It's, it's, it's this ability to internalize it. We actually need God to help us. It's like learning a language. At some point in the process, you need a native speaker to help you understand what you're actually hearing. God accommodates us. And, and, and so Paul is praying that the Holy Spirit would strengthen us to be able to comprehend or to carry the weight of his glory that we can't hold on our own. We need his strength to do this. And this gets at what theologians have called divine accommodation. In simple terms, divine accommodation just means that God accommodates or adjusts or communicates to us in ways that will allow us to be able to understand him and have relationship with him. He's like a parent laying down on the floor to get eye to eye with his infant during tummy time. He accommodates us by coming down to our level and communicates with us in ways that we can understand. 
But even when he does this, even when he does come down to our level, his appearance demonstrates his otherworldliness. Regularly throughout the Bible, when people encounter God, they're left speechless or in terror or completely awestruck in such a way that the only response is to humbly admit their smallness. And I would argue that if you haven't had an experience with God in such a way that you're forced to admit your weakness, your inabilities, your inadequacies, then I would argue that you may not have actually ever met God. For instance, in Exodus chapter 20, our transcendent and holy God came down to speak to his, his people in a thick cloud filled with thunder and lightning on Mount Sinai. The transcendent terror of his divine nature on display as he draws near his people. And how did they respond? Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. They asked for Moses to mediate between the two because they couldn't stand the terror of speaking to God directly. Or another example, in Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet gets a vision of God sitting on his throne. And God's greatness loomed so large that just the hem of his robe completely filled the temple. Just the very edge of it was enough to fill the entire temple. And after seeing the divine and feeling the shaking of the foundations and hearing the seraphim call out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The prophet cries out, Woe is me, for I am lost. After seeing the purity of the king, the Lord of hosts, Isaiah realizes that he's filthy and unclean. Or one more, and this one is my favorite. After an entire book filled with Job demanding that God give him explanations for his misery, God responds to Job out of the whirlwind and says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And after a four chapter long encounter with the divine, with the transcendence of God, Job responds and says, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. What we see here is that even when God accommodates his creatures and comes down to our level, we are often left with nothing but the perspective of our smallness and inability. His transcendence requires a shift in our perspective. His greatness requires that we feel small. Small, but not unseen. But if we haven't had a real encounter with this God, or we're unwilling to shift our perspective, what we inevitably end up doing is misunderstanding God by mismeasuring him. But how do we do that? How do we mismeasure God? See, a a running joke in my home, although I don't think it's as much of a joke um, as it is a tragedy to my wife, uh, is that I consistently mismeasure when I'm working on projects around the house. Every construction project I do has at least one extra trip to Home Depot to get more lumber or more sheetrock or whatever because I cut something too short 
and what I'm left with is a useless scrap that is literally good for nothing. It can't help me with what I'm doing, and now I don't have enough to finish what I started. And while this is an unfortunate frustration in my home when I'm building, this is a catastrophic error when we apply it to God. When we mismeasure the majestic. Because when we mismeasure God, we always end up doing two things. We make ourselves too big, and we make him too small. Let me explain. First, we make us too big. One of the best examples uh, found in the Bible for us is Genesis chapter 11, and it's the story of the Tower of Babel. And, And I'm sure you know the story because it's pretty familiar, but here in nine verses, we actually learn quite a few things. Babel, from which we get uh, the, the nation of Babylon, who would go on to represent the kingdoms of the world that are at enmity with the kingdom of God all the way throughout the rest of the Bible. Um, what they do is that they come together and they essentially say, we have no need for God. They say, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. But what we see is that as great as they thought that they had become, right? They're making a tower with its heights in God's dwelling place. They're basically saying, we can occupy the place of the transcendence. We can be roommates with him. We're on his level. But what we see is that the narrative uh, tells us that God still had to come down and see the city and the tower that they had made. It's almost comical, right? It's as if he had to squint, put on his glasses, and crouch really low just to see what they were so impressed with. Or it's like in that episode of The Office when when David Wallace is disciplining Dwight. And Michael kind of comes around the table and he stands on David Wallace's side and he looks at him and and David puts him back on the other side. He's like, no, you're here for discipline too. We're not on the same level. But the story of Babel goes to show us that it's not always individually, but even collectively, that we can throw off the truth of God's transcendence. We can make ourselves too big. We tend to believe that we're bigger than we are. And church, I need you to hear this. There is a danger of coming together in God's name, but functioning together as if God is not needed. And when we do that, we begin operating not out of dependence, but just in favor of pragmatic group effort. It's because we've made ourselves too big. We think too highly of ourselves. We no longer rely upon him in prayer. We're no longer scouring his word to find what he says regarding life's circumstances. We're simply doing what we think is right. What we feel is best. And then we're slapping God's name on it and calling it holy. We're saying this is a Christian way because we as a church are doing it or we as Christians are doing it. And don't get me wrong. The Bible says that there is wisdom amongst many advisors and that a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Meaning that when we work together, we can actually accomplish far more than when we're on our own. But it also tells us that if the Lord is not in the work, then the laborers labor in vain. No one can thwart the plans of the Almighty. Even the seemingly random throw of the dice is predetermined by God. And so we shouldn't make ourselves bigger than we are. We are dependent creatures, and so we need to act like dependent creatures. Don't buy the lie that anything that you do is independent from God. Don't think too highly of yourselves. 
Because when we do this, we commit the second error of thinking of God as too small. We, we turn him into a scrap that we just find useless. Uh, my kids are consistently caught up with knowing when they're going to be bigger. And who is the biggest? My five-year-old is always ranking us. He says he's bigger than his little brother, but I'm bigger than him. And then he says, and God's even bigger than you. Which is technically true, but it betrays how he, and I would argue how we, tend to view God. Generally speaking, we fall into the habit of assuming that God is just a bigger version of ourselves. We don't necessarily keep his transcendence in the front of our minds because it's difficult to do so. Right? Like we said, we need the Holy Spirit's strength just to comprehend him, let alone maintain that hold. It's like doing a pull-up may be difficult enough, but then to do a pull-up and then hold that is going to be even harder still. No, keeping God's transcendence in the front of your mind is extremely difficult. Instead, it's just much easier to relate to God in terms of him being like you, but just greater. We like to relate to him on terms we understand. And, and when I say bigger and greater, I don't exactly mean size, but I mean greater in all ways. Right? You may say, I'm a moral person, but God, he's just, he's more moral. I'm a just person, but God, he's, he's more just. I'm a kind person, but God, he's just, he's more kind. And the list goes on and on. But when we do this, we're making God in our image which is obviously backwards, right? The Bible says clearly that God made us in his image, not that we should make him in ours. He sets the terms for how we are to view him, not the other way around. Because whenever we're setting the terms for him, they are not going to be adequate. That's why Calvin says, the Lord forbids images made of him because all of them are insulting to his majesty. And so we're prone to making God too small. Nothing more than a bigger version of ourselves. Maybe, maybe we make him like Genie from Aladdin. He's small enough to fit into our pocket, but powerful enough to be able to solve our problems when we call on him. And don't, don't, we like that view. Let's just be honest. We like that view of God because he's always at our disposal. He's there for us when we want him to be, and he will always act in the way that we ask him to. And unfortunately, I think in these ways, when we make uh, him smaller and us bigger, we've taken the transcendent God of the Bible and we've attempted to tame him. We attempt to domesticate the majestic. But what happens when you try to domesticate a wild animal? Eventually, you're going to get bit. I remember watching a video of this man uh, petting a lion through the fence of an enclosure. And as you might expect, he got bit, and he got bit very badly. Um, but it shows you that the reason that he thought it would be okay to touch a beast like that is the notion that just because he was able to draw close to it, he thought it was safe. Because he had it boxed in, he thought that he could approach it on his own terms. And I think particularly in the Christmas season, because God has accommodated us. He's come near to us. He's gotten close. He's come down to our level. We forget that the baby in the manger is the thunderous God of Mount Sinai. We forget that the king of glory whose robe filled the temple lay there in swaddling cloths. 
He's the God of the whirlwind. But when we do remember that, and we do relate to God right, and we do have a proper perspective, we still have to ask the question, how does God's transcendence prove his love for us? The late theologian J.I. Packer noted that many thoughtful people find the gospel challenging to believe. But many also, quote, make faith harder than it need be by finding difficulties in the wrong places. He says the atonement, the resurrection, the virgin birth, and the miracles, they're all challenging to believe on face value. But they all pale in comparison to the Christian claim that the baby in the manger really was God. He says, quote, nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is the truth of the incarnation. And he's right. I mean, think about it. Our transcendent God, the one who put that pale blue dot, the one who, who suspended that moat of dust called the earth in that sunbeam. He came to that little speck of dust to be made like the littlest ones on it. The king of glory who owns the wealth of all creation He was born into a family that had nothing to offer at his dedication but two pigeons, which is the poorest. It's reserved for the poorest of society. He lived most of his earthly life in obscurity. In his ministry, he was a homeless teacher. At one moment, captivating the crowds with his words and miracles, and at the next, seeing them all walk away because he called them to pick up their crosses and follow after him. And at the end of his life, he was betrayed and abandoned by those closest to him as he hung on the cross to pay for the sin of the world. But listen, this life of seeming weakness, a life that some might look at and say, this is inconsistent with the belief that Jesus is the transcendent God of the Bible. It was not a life of weakness, but a life instead displaying true strength. Right, You know this. When, when a person is truly wronged and they choose not to respond with vengeance or, or retribution, what do we say about them? We say they're being the bigger person. We're, we're saying they're standing strong. They're taking the high road. And that's because true power isn't always seen in the exertion of it, but by its restraint. It oftentimes takes more power to restrain that. In the incarnation, and particularly on the cross, Jesus was like a bodybuilder with his baby girl. He had all the power to lift boulders, but this power is fully on display as it's carefully directed toward the task of just moving the hair out of her face. That was Jesus. He wasn't less than God. He was just unwilling to do anything less than the perfect will of the Father. And so at the cross, Jesus' almighty power was seen on full display in the fact that he stayed. Isaiah said that in that moment, he was crushed. He was blotted out. He was forsaken. This is not necessarily uh, what we would expect transcendent power to look like. But self-sacrifice for others is how the power of true love is actually displayed. And true love always has a cost. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones has this great illustration where he says, imagine I told you I was at your house and a bill came and I paid it. 
And the next time I see you, I let you know that I paid that bill. Well, what's your response going to be? Well, really, it depends on how much that bill was. If it was a $2 fine, you may say, thanks for the hassle and the postage and pat me on the back and I'm good to go. But if it was the IRS demanding, demanding tens of thousands of dollars in back taxes, money that you don't have, money that you can't pay, you might now say, I am wholly indebted to you for paying this. See, the Bible tells us that our sin had created a debt. That we had a bill so large that we couldn't pay it and get right with God on our own. A chasm had been made that is wider than the oceans are deep. It was so great that we couldn't get to our transcendent God, but the good news of the gospel is that in love, he came to us. See, you may think that your sin just isn't that bad, that it's really not that big of a deal. I'm generally a good person. Yeah, I sin here and there, but it's not that big of a deal. But look at the cost. Look at the price tag. Look at the power of God on display in the crucifixion. The author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ is the radiance and glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He says that Jesus upholds the universe by the power of his word. And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's the second person of the triune Godhead. He's the eternally existing son. And the Bible says that he accommodated us and drew near to us in the incarnation. That he was blotted out on the cross for us. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is the truth of the incarnation. Don't think that just because Jesus became small and close that he's tame. He showed his divinity in his earthly ministry through his miracles. And we said that he showed us true power as he exercised it in weakness on the cross. But he went on to flex his omnipotent muscles on the third day when he decided to get up from death more easily than you and I get out of bed. And in his resurrection power, Paul writes in Ephesians 4 that when he ascended on high, he took a host of captives with him. In Ephesians 2, Paul says that those who were dead in their trespasses and sins, God made alive together with Christ. And he writes in Ephesians 1 that in Christ, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heaven. Listen, I know you may not feel like you're blessed right now. You may feel low in life right now. You may feel small and unseen. You may be in some of the worst pain of your life. But I need you to hear this. One of the things that Paul is getting at in this letter to the Ephesians is the promise that to those who believe, Christ will raise you to the heights from which he came to get you. The greatness and glory of God became small to make those of us who are small into his greatness and glory. See, the height of God's love extends past the cross farther than a sin debt forgiven, and into the heavenly places where God has seated us with Christ. He's able to do far more than we can ask or even imagine. And as Christians, that's now where we live. We live as citizens here on this earth of that heavenly kingdom, willing to show true power in weakness, by willingly restraining ourselves from the things that we want now in order that we can fully gain Christ. And with all this in mind, we return to our question that we asked at the beginning. How high 
is the love of God for us in Christ. It's as high as the incarnation is small. The height of God's love to us is on display in how small he was willing to become for us. This Advent season, encounter the Almighty. Don't try to put the one you think that you've tamed. Don't try to pet him. Don't, don't cut him too small and mismeasure him as a scrap that you find now useless. No, tremble before him in holy adoration and fear. Meditate on the height of God's love for you as seen in the transcendent God of the universe wrapped in a baby's delicate skin than a king's royal robes. And let the truth and the glory of the gospel compel you to live a life of true power as you, like Christ, show an unwillingness to do anything but the will of the Father. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, you are a...